Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to be able to bring to you a talk from the December meeting of the Whitechapel Society, 1888. For those of you who don't know about the Whitechapel Society, it started out as the Cloak and Dagger Club over 20 years ago and holds meetings every other month featuring speakers on a wide variety of topics all related to Victorian and Edwardian times in the East End of London. They also publish the bi-monthly journal of the Whitechapel Society, which contains feature articles, news, and reviews. For more information on joining the Whitechapel Society, visit their website at whitechapelsociety.com, and you can also find them on Facebook and Twitter. And now we present to you Neil Story's talk from the December 2015 meeting, East End Tales of Ghosts, Grim Times, and Dark Deeds, which is introduced by Philip Hutchison. We, we had this decision this afternoon with his name being Power, and the fact he's operating the laptop, we should call him PowerPoint. <laughs> it's not, not the best joke. <laughs> I wish it was dead. Uh, so welcome to the December meeting of the Whitechapel Society. Um, I've been given no information about this evening's speaker at all, but frankly, he doesn't really need a great deal of information about it. Uh, Neil Story has spoken to the Whitechapel Society before and at uh, the Ghost Club and at various conferences. In, in fact, you can't shut him up. No, no, you, you really can't. Really can't shut him up. Uh, his, his grandmother was one of the first St. John's Ambulance women and he followed in her footsteps years later by becoming one of the first male St. John's Ambulance women. Uh, he, he had his first book published at the age of 16. It was called, Why is my life so awful and everyone hates me and why does the curl next door ignore me? No, it wasn't. This is going swimmingly this evening, isn't it? Look, I was doing this crap all afternoon. I have no comedy left in me. Um, he's, he's written about 40 books now. They, they generally um, concentrate on uh, East Anglia uh, or war or, or, or crime. And uh, his, his certainly um, one of the books of his I've got, The Grim Almanac of Jack the Ripper's London, is, is one that's really worth seeking out. Um, he's got his own small private crime collection as well. It includes the execution bell from, from Norwich Jail and various body parts, but I, th- I think he just dug those up from cemeteries as decoration. He's got a special locked room, you know, in, the, in his house. It's just it's covered in dust. No one's been in there for years. And uh, he's got skulls that he'd drink out of, and it's, it's, it's terrible. Um, he's also a, a reenactor. He does he does a great deal of that. Um, th- there's always photos turning up on the internet of Neil wearing some um, old World War One army uniform or something from the Home Guard from World War Two. Or uh, if you want to look on specialist sites, you've got him wearing certain other costumes as well. Uh, he sometimes plays minor roles in TV programs. Um, Jackie Murphy and Alan Hunt like to play a game of spot the story to see when he's actually on, on there. His, his talk today is Ghosts, Grim Tales and Dark Deeds in the East End, something very suitable for Christmas in the Dickensian style of, uh, of telling ghost stories, but particularly with a an, uh, concentration on this particular area. If he calls you buddy, it's not a term of endearment. He really doesn't just remember your name. Uh, please welcome the former head boy of North Walsham High School, ladies and gentlemen, Neil Story. Thank you very much. 
you've got friends and neighbours, you're the richest man in town. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me back. How are you all? Good. 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 We've been in very safe hands today, I am sure, some very good talks. Tonight is a night where you will hear some factual tales, but there might be a little bit of lead swinging too, because people in the East End, as much people do around Christmas time and winter time, like to tell a few stories. So tonight there are stories about the East End, there are stories about other events in London that were remembered in the East End of London for many years after. I'm sure that when we were all growing up, there would be a bogeyman. Don't you do that, or so-and-so will get you. And you'd wonder about where does that story come from. Or there would be stories that they loved to regale. So, without any more ado, I'll see, can, see if I can make this thing work. Ah, oh, that's it, very seasonal. This is what? The Salvation Eye. And let's face it, at Christmas time you'll hear their bands and beautiful silver polished instruments. And you'll see these guys here, that's an accordion band. Because it's for ladies and it wasn't seemly for them to play brass instruments and parades. So they would walk along with squeeze boxes. And of course, in the East End, the Salvation Army found its roots. Booth was around here. This is where it all began. So it has a really special focus. But... It also has an impact on the story and the uniform of the Salvation Army. Here's the man himself. For some people, he's even a ripper suspect, for goodness sake. But his good work across the whole of the East End made such a difference to those that were really, really on their uppers, and in fact, even those on the streets. We all know today that Salvation Army's outreach work towards those are homeless it's beyond compare. It really is. So the work really does go on. And it's good stuff. Ever since they started, so they, they used to call them the Sally Army, they had this idea of empowering people. Oh, give up bad living. Give up drinking. Give up this. Give up that. And then you want to send... And some people got a little bit shirty about that because they didn't like to be told what to do. And they thought, well, these people are getting a bit sanctimonious for my liking. And in fact, such... And they, to be honest, the Salvation Army saw the demon drink as the main enemy. And quite often, you know, you've got families on the poverty line. The old man, he's earning the money, but he's spending it in the pubs. So they even produced the modern plague map of London. It wasn't the Sally Army on their own. There were all sorts of people involved with that, including even brewers. You know, the sons, one or two notable brewers, said, oh, God, you know, I don't really like what my family is doing. So they got involved with the temperance movement. Now, because the Salvation Army is garnering a lot of support, it's got a lot of light on it, and they're marching through the streets. A lot of the other brewers didn't like the fact that they're making this ground, making the demon drink, they're demonising it. So they paid people to stone Salvation Army bands as they walked along the street. Literally, pick up what you can, stones, clods of dirt, anything you like, and hoik it at them. Shout abuse. There were even instances where they would get carts and drive them up at the bands at breakneck speed to try and cause them to splatter all over the roads. Thank God there were no fatalities that I've found as yet. But it was rough times. And you can see that they did have the women with the tambourines on parade, sometimes with the squeeze boxes. So to protect those women... Frog, hello. Hi. Did you want something? Can you tell Steve about Steve's like 
Steve, that, that's, that speaker's not working. He's not interested. <laughs> I, there's no way I'm going to be able to get down this side here. Can you, if I, if I project, can you hear me over this side? Go and sit near that speaker, Frog. You can hear my dulcet... Come and sit, sit next to me, if you like. There we are. I was, I was just getting into my stride there, you know. Sorry, Dave. That's all right, Frog. Yeah. Shall I just carry on? Yeah. What about the speaker? On the speaker. <laughs> Listen to it. It's good. Now then, so you've got these girls on parade. They're being so. So how on earth are you going to protect these women? Well, they're corseted up. Should they get a strike on the body, they sometimes put metal strips into their under corsets to protect them. But what about their face? Well, they developed a bonnet. There's one. And that's why the Salvation Army wore bonnets well into the 20th century. Really out of style, out of fashion, but the original bonnets came a little bit further forward even than this one. And it was to protect the ladies' faces from being stoned at or hoiked at when they were on parade. We shouldn't forget as well that the Salvation Army sent these women off and being very well <coughs> middle-class ladies armed with a Bible and a little bit of medical knowledge to attend to people in their homes. People suffering from contagious diseases sometimes. So these Sally Army slum saviours, as they became known, some of them succumbed to those same diseases as the people they were looking after. So it's a, it's a grim tale, it's a dark tale as well, the story of the Sally Army. And not only that, because of these parades, because some people didn't like them, they also used to call them the Skeleton Army. Now, having dealt with something a little bit Christmassy, I'll tell you a story that lingered here in London for many, many years, and including the East End. It was a story that people used to love to tell. Does anybody recognise who this lady is? For she is a murder victim. This picture hangs in the Admiralty, and her name is Martha Ray. She was quite a name on the Covent Garden stage. She was a singer, very, very popular, and uh, she had a couple of children, but no man around. Ooh, no, no. She was, in fact, the mistress of the Earl of Sandwich, and she was an extremely personable lady. And she would meet people at all sorts of events. And be very, very charming. But as you can see, I've told you, she's a murder victim. This is the morning sheet, the engraving in her memory. What could have brought such a charming and promising life to an end? It was this man. Now the black dot I used to think was a fault on the picture, but actually it's a pox patch. And this is a man by the name of James Hackman. And she encountered him in Cambridgeshire when she was out and about with the Earl. Uh, at a nice party, and she was absolutely charming. She never revealed to Hackman that she was the mistress of the Earl of Sandwich and very well provided for. Oh, no, 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 she was just a very nice lady. And he was absolutely smitten with her. And so he said, well, you know, he started to see her occasionally, and, oh, just happened to bump into her now and again and go and see her perform. And he said, I'd like to marry you. And she said, oh, I, I could never marry you. Because at that time, he was a young ensign. His family had paid for him to go to the army. Oh, I could never go for a soldier. I'd just like a quiet man, perhaps a priest. So you can guess what he went and did, can't you? 
he goes and takes holy orders. And he's given a piddly little parish in the beautiful county of Norfolk. He's given Witherton, right in the back end of the county, high on the coast, very quiet. And then he comes to London and he tracks down Martha Ray. And he says, my darling, look at me now. I've got all my holy orders. I've got all my gowns on. Here I am. Come and live in Wivton. <laughs> yeah, the reaction was pretty much the same. Uh, she really wasn't keen on that. And she tried to do it in a nice way. She tried to say to him, I, I really don't want to do this. He kept on barding her letters. He became a stalker, in effect. And her singing mistress, Madame Patty, had to, in the end, intervene and sent him quite a frank letter because he was distressing her pupil. So what does he do? He goes to a tailor's and he gets a new jacket made. A new jacket that contains two special pockets for pistols. And then he goes on a night when he knew that Martha May wasn't performing, but she had visited the Covent Garden stage. And underneath the arches of Covent Garden, he makes her, her an offer, really. An offer she wasn't meant to refuse. It was an offer that said, marry me now, marry me. And she would have nothing of it, and she dismissed him from it. He said, right, if I cannot have you, then no man will have you. Bang, he shoots her dead. And down goes Martha Ray. Then he turns the, his own, the other pistol, dramatically onto himself, and it goes bang, but it's quite literally a flash in the pan. It doesn't discharge, and so he's left looking a bit more wally, really. So he flips the pistol round, it's got a nice big brass end on it, he starts trying to club himself to death with it. Uh, that didn't work very well. Uh, Semi-conscious, but he was taken away. He was tried within little more than a week. And then after a following week after that, after due time and appeals, there was no appeal, he just admitted to it, he wanted to die, he ended up on the gallows of Newgate. And that used to be one of those stories that everyone would tell in the East End, don't get smitten, lest you know where it would lead you. Remember James Hackman and Martha Ray. But a story that lingered here in the East is centred around a place that already had infamy. It was the Ratcliffe Highway, known as a resort of criminal types, thieves, footpads and vagabonds. And in 1811, there was Mr. Marr and his family in his little shop, and they sent the young girl that worked in the shop out to go and get something for dinner. And she wasn't gone an immense amount of time. She returned, and all of the shop was shuttered and shut up, and she couldn't get in. And break in with the help of a watchman and inside the entire Ma family was found murdered, even the baby in the crib. And if you've seen the series Whitechapel on television, you will see that that is one of the stories that they allude to in the series. Yeah. But who committed this heinous crime? Well, they didn't know. It's a murderer on the loose in the Ratcliffe Highway. And whenever a murderer is on the loose, people walk with fear. Where is he going to attack next? If he can attack a whole family in their home, is he going to come to our house next? So what happened? There was a further horrible murder, believed to have been perpetrated by the same person. The murder of Mr. and Mrs. Williamson in their pub. One fellow who was working there, he saw the murderer stalking through the house ominously, and they showed him here looking half decent. He was stark naked. 
And he tied some sheets together and dived to the street below and ran off. I love these early booklets and illustrations. I've collected them for many years. They're lovely to have and they're so evocative of the time. So who could have committed this crime? They were, the watch were absolutely at a loss. And that was until one of the landladies, just by chance, found that a man staying with her, a man by the name of Williams, had a, he was a ship's carpenter, and the murder weapon, this maul, a very distinctive maul, there was something very similar in his box of tools. And so he was accused of the crime, he was put in Coldbath Fields, and there he stood in his cell awaiting trial, and I gather the pressure got to the poor man, and he committed suicide, he hanged himself in his cell. And so in those days, this is before the more modern burial acts, and whoever committed suicide would not be permitted to be buried in consecrated ground. And so the body would be taken, you associate this with rural places, taken to a crossroads, and there, as the sun goes down, the sexton would have, the, the, the hole would have been ready, and he'd be lowered in there and buried at the crossroads. The idea being that if the ghost rose and he stood at the crossroads, he wouldn't know which way to turn to get back to attack the people that had blamed him. It was also the symbolism of the cross. In some instances, they even took a wooden stake and drove it through the suicide's chest. This wasn't really anything to do with vampires, but it was everything to do with pinning the soul, the heart as the repository, and pin them in the ground. John Williams is taken through the streets of London. You think, you know, in this advanced world of 1811, maybe people would have thought a bit differently, but they didn't. And let's face it, it was still a time of public execution. And so, Descartes, his body was put on display, including the weapons that supposedly he committed the crime with, and his head is resting on the stake that would be driven through his heart with the murder weapon. And he was buried at the crossroads at the top of the Radcliffe Highway. And there he sat for years and years, and then they had some road maintenance, and the grave got dug up, and they actually found his body, and they took a sk the skull and put it into one of the local pubs. And it was there for years, until some twit dropped it, and it smashed to a thousand pieces. But the Radcliffe Highway, and here it is, it really didn't change its reputation. It, it never did. It still was the place of footpads, vagabonds, thieves, horrible places to live. But then again, the old dichotomy of London stuck to it because it was a place where you had some quite well-to-do folks and one of the most interesting and intriguing shops of all London town. And that was... Does anybody know? Jamax. Now this was a bestiary. You could literally go and buy any type of animal. He would try and get it for you. You could get a zebra. You could go and get your monkeys, lions, tigers. And it is out of Jamax that a rather unfortunate thing happened in the year 1857. A couple of ladies were standing in the shop opposite Jamax here. Jamax is, look at the little spot, there it is. 
they were actually looking in the shop window opposite, and they saw this unusual coloured thing bounding towards them. And they turned round, and it was a full-grown Bengal tiger. <laughs> and they screamed and went off, and they parted, the tiger rears off, and there's this little boy of about eight or nine years old, just standing there, and the tiger grabs him. This is the cover of the boy's own paper. Jamrak's own account was published in that. And the tiger runs off with the kid. And so Mr. Jamrak comes out personally, puts his hand into the tiger's mouth, and prizes open the jaws so it released the child. The child wasn't killed. Thank goodness. Mind you, the little boy did sue Jamrak, and I think he got 300 quid for the assault. But the story kind of trans... It, changes a bit over the years and it becomes the story of how this tiger picked the child up they've even tried to twist it into oh there was a carriage coming and the tiger grabbed the child and bound it out of the way saving the child's life or it becomes this other charming sort of almost jungle book story of the tiger and the boy so if you go to tobacco dock today you'll see that there's a statue there and there you will see it is a tiger and a boy. Just one East End tale that lingers to this day. What happened to the tiger? Well, it wasn't shot. It literally got out of a cage. They're not going to dispose of a valuable beast like that. But rather than hang on to it, it became a curiosity in its own right because of the story. So the tiger was sold to... Wormwell's Menagerie. And for many, many years it went around the country with Wormwell's displays. And it did get out once more. But again, it bounded around a bit, but it didn't kill anyone, thank goodness. And that's the story of the Ratcliffe Highway Tiger. Another story that involves streets and a story that lingered across London town is the tale of James Greenacre and the Edgware Road tragedy. Now, it's funny this. As a Norfolk man, I always like to see places and stories that connect to my county. And Greenacre was actually a Norfolk man. He was born at North Rockton. And there he worked as an estate agent. It says a lot about his character, doesn't it? As it's Christmas, you can go, Urgh, estate agents, we're allowed that, we're allowed, not dummy dice, panther. Anyway, and he was a, a sort of variable sort of character because when he met uh, a lady by the name of Hannah Brown, uh, it was over at the Earl of Kimberley's place near Wyndham. And she was one of his servants there, and he really liked her, and he became a bit of a pest. And so the Earl of Kimberley sent her down to London and said, OK, get, get, get down to London, you'll stop troubling me at my house. Guess, guess what he does? Greenacre follows her down to the metropolis. And he finds her, and he woos her, and she becomes smitten with him, and they become engaged to be married. Hooray! Didn't go well, though. Uh, he met this nice blonde lady by the name of Sarah Gale. He liked her a lot more. Uh, so rather than saying, oh, let's break off the engagement, you know, no more, um, an argument develops, and it is said it was with a silk roller. He grabbed that, he belted the one with it, he killed her instantly. Boof, down she goes. Oh, Christ. And he's got his body. What are you going to do with that? 
I know. Let's cut it into pieces and distribute it around London suburbs. That's a good idea, isn't it? Yeah, what we, I mean, body parts, I mean, you could say it's a medical prank, it's a joke. And this caused fear on the streets of London. You know, it wasn't just Jack that started this. This was fear on the streets of the metropolis. There's body parts turning up. What the devil is it? Is it one victim? Is it several victims? Is it a joke? Is it a prank? Well, he takes the head and he dumps it in the river. He thinks, ah, that's not going to be any trouble there. Trouble is, it wasn't far from the lock gates on Regent's Canal. And they try and open lock gates on the morning after, and uh, they won't open. Oh, jamming, right, try and investigate that. So have a fish around, and they pull up this whole blood-soaked rag. And inside it, they found a head. Now, in those days, there was no crime watch. There was no Community Action Trust rewards. And if you remember, we didn't really have wanted posters as such with an illustration until the later part of the 19th century. Who was the first wanted poster with Mr Wood? Um, the first Lefroy Mapleton. Lefroy Mapleton, absolutely. I knew you'd know that. It should have been something. <laughs> this is one of these nasty little depictions of what Mr. Mr. Greenacre did, taking the body and turning it into chunks. And when they eventually got hold of him, they illustrated it rather nicely on the Paddington murder sheet. And what happened was, they thought, well, how are we going to track down who this woman was? So they put the head on display. There it is. Doesn't look very appealing, but there we are, if anybody recognises it. And there was some sort of vague remembrance that they recognised that face. And I thought, hmm, she hasn't been around a bit. Why don't we go and have a look at Mr. Greenacre's lodgings? And they go to Greenacre's lodgings and they find a bundle of rags. And there is a lovely big old apron with a large section torn out of it. And they get the rag that the head was wrapped in and they compare it to the rest of the apron. And they found it fitted. Oh dear, blood on the hands of Mr. Greenacre. And so he ends up being hanged in front of the debtor's door at Newgate, that we can see here. And this is a lovely early representation, probably from the time of his, the crowd waiting for his execution. And as you know, in crowds, I don't know, I don't think that's a formal dog fight. I think that's just a couple of dogs having a go at one another. But as you know, you could get hot toddy drinks, you could get your gin, you could get fruit, apples, you could get nuts, you know, all sorts. And you could also get hot meat pies. And it was here, on the scaffold, that Colcraft stands. And it was a, one of the first known public endorsement adverts. Because he stands up with the pie in his hand, takes a great big bite through it, and with the gravy dribbling down his chin, he says, look at this! The chunks of meat in this, they are wonderful, are they not? From this time forward, these pies will be known as Greenacres. So the next time that you see an account of a public execution where there was food on sale, don't be surprised if they mention the Greenacres were good or bad or inferior on that day. It will refer to the pies that were sold at an execution. And believe you me, all across London, and in fact you can find references to it across Great Britain, you'll find the story of Greenacre pies.
And that was Neil Story with East End Tales of Ghosts, Grim Times, and Dark Deeds, a presentation given at the Whitechapel Society's December 2015 meeting. I'd like to thank all of those at the Whitechapel Society for allowing RipperCast to distribute these events via the podcast. I really hope that you enjoy them as I sure do, and perhaps we'll be able to release more of these Whitechapel Society talks down the road, so be sure to try to find us and leave us some feedback. And I would like to give a special thank you to photographer and graphic designer Andrew Firth for supplying the podcast with his original photograph of P.C. Ernest Thompson's grave for us to use as podcast art for this episode. P.C. Thompson being the Bobby that discovered Francis Cole's body in Swallow Gardens and who went on to be brutally killed in the line of duty in 1900. Andrew Firth's book, Fragments of the East End, collects many of his wonderful photographs and designs, and he's highly regarded in this community for his extraordinary photos, montages, conference packs, and we couldn't be happier that he's loaned us the photograph for this episode. So thank you, Andrew. Rupertcast is hosted by the website casebook.org. It's available there and in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store, And you can find me and a lot of guests and friends of the podcast and our Facebook page, RipperCast's True Crime Discussion Group. In the immediate future, do expect more traditional RipperCast episodes coming your way. And I want to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.